His conversion to Christianity is a turning point in the book of Acts. After Paul was converted and began to believe in Jesus Christ, he became a preacher of the gospel, a planter of churches, a discipler of people to help them go out and they could take the gospel to the ends of the earth. One of the churches that Paul planted was the church in Ephesus. He appeared to have stayed there around three years, preaching the gospel, establishing leaders, making disciples. When his time was up and it was time to go on to preach the gospel in other places, the apostle Paul left a young man to take over as the pastor of that church. That young man's name was Timothy. When Timothy took over as the pastor of the church at Ephesus, there were issues that needed to be dealt with. There were false teachers and false doctrine that had to be rooted out and exposed. There was sin that people needed to have dealt with in their lives. There was um, the need to go and to make disciples, to train up new leaders, to take over the church. There was also the fact that it seems from what we understand, Timothy himself was a timid person. He wasn't naturally outspoken. He wasn't a natural leader. And it may even be that he suffered with depression and discouragement as he tried to lead the church. As he dealt with all of these issues, trying to lead the church, the Apostle Paul, his mentor, took the time to write him a letter to encourage him. To encourage him to keep on keeping on, not to give up on serving Christ, but to stay faithful until the end. And one of the ways that Paul wrote to encourage Timothy was to tell Timothy about what Jesus Christ had done in his life. He wanted Timothy to know that what Jesus had done in him, he could do in others. That what Jesus had done in Paul, he could do in Timothy. We see this in this passage. In verses 12 through 15, Paul talks about what Jesus has done in him, through him, and for him. And then in verse 16, he explains the reason that he's telling this. So that everybody would see that Paul was a pattern. That Paul was a pattern of what Christ could do and what Christ would do in all people who believed in him. And the main thing that I want us to understand today is that what Jesus did for Paul, he can do for all. The things that we're looking at in this passage that Jesus did in Paul's life, through Paul's life, and for Paul, they are not unique to merely Paul. It's not that we're to look at this and go, Paul was a spiritual superhero. He was just something I could not accomplish. Instead, we're to look at Paul's life and we're to see that what Jesus did in him, Jesus can do in us. And there are two primary truths that we learn that Jesus did in Paul that he can do for us all. The first is that Jesus seeks and saves sinners. Paul explains that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. That's a fact that we are well aware of. And as Paul, in verses 13, 14, and 15, explains Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, he gives us two powerful principles for our lives. Two powerful principles for others that we want to help come to know Jesus Christ. The first is that my sin is no match for Jesus' grace. My sin is no match for Jesus' grace. Now, when we think of Paul, we think of him as the gospel preacher, the church planner, the disciple maker. We tend to forget who Paul was when he met Jesus. Paul, however, never forgot. He never forgot what he was when he met Jesus. And he explains some of that to Timothy here. He says, first, I was formerly a blasphemer. Who did Timothy, who did Paul blaspheme? Jesus. Uh, Paul 
was a Jew. Committed to God, committed to the Torah, committed to the law, and committed to being a Pharisee. And he was looking for the Messiah to come. But Paul was not convinced that Jesus was this Messiah. In fact, Paul was convinced that Jesus was a fraud. And so Paul, what he did was he set out to do all that he could to harm the name of Jesus, to belittle the name of Jesus, to mock the idea that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He did not want people to respect and honor the name of Jesus. He blasphemed him. Now, he didn't do it. Because he, he wasn't like the people that do the, the blasphemy challenge on, on, on YouTube. Right? Paul really did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He really and truly believed that he was a fraud. It's like a, a guy I served with in Germany. His name was Root. We called him the Root of all evil. Root worshipped the sun. Now, not the son of God, but the big ball of fire in the sky. And Root's worship of the sun was different than anything else I had ever seen in my life. When you're from Pickett, Oklahoma, you don't have a lot of experience around people that worship the sun and do witchcraft like Root could do. And Root was like the high priest of the sun over all the earth. He was like the man. And Root told us that if we gave him our cocoa powder out of our MREs, he could control the weather and make it nice for us. So, not necessarily believing him, but always trying to hedge your bets, we, we would give him our cocoa powder. One particular November, out in Grun, uh, Grunewald, Germany, it was raining, it was cold, it was windy, it was miserable. And after about two weeks of giving Root my cocoa powder and still freezing, still wet, still miserable, I told Root, I'm not giving you any more of my cocoa powder. I'll pour it out on the ground before I give it to you. He said, well, I can't, you know... I can't control the weather if you don't give me your cocoa powder, Ross. I said, Root, you're not controlling the weather anyway. I said, unless you're trying. I said, is, is the sun god a sissy? I said, it seems to me the sun god is afraid of the rain god, Root. Why would I want to give you my cocoa powder when your god can't even do that? He looked at me with a horrified look and he said, Ross, that's blasphemy. I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, it's okay, Root. I'm pretty much a sun god atheist. I'm not concerned. That was kind of how Paul was. right? He wasn't mocking a God he believed was real. He was mocking the idea that Jesus was the Christ. He was a, a blasphemer. But not only was Paul a, a blasphemer, Paul was also a persecutor, it says. Paul hated the name of Jesus to the extent that Paul did all that he could to eliminate and eradicate the name of Jesus from the earth. The way that he sought to do that was to hunt down people who worshipped Jesus and cause them to recant their faith. Now, Paul was a pretty committed guy to this process. Paul hated Jesus, and he hated the church of Jesus Christ, but he didn't like write Facebook posts about it. He didn't write blogs about it. He didn't debate people and say, let me show you how wrong you are. Instead, what Paul did was Paul got letters from the religious leaders and he went all over the world where there were Jewish people that he could have authority over. And he would root out among them and look for people who believed in this way. And whether they were men or women, he would grab them and bind them and take them to Jerusalem for trial. Now, the idea that he brought women doesn't speak much to us because we don't think much about that. But in Paul's day, women didn't have a lot of rights. And it was just assumed as a general rule that if the husband converted to a religion, the wife would as well. 
So what other Jewish people who were persecuting the church at that time did was, if they went and they found a husband and wife that were converted to Christianity, they would take the husband but leave the wife, assuming the wife had no choice in the matter but to follow her husband. Paul did not take that idea. Paul assumed that if the wife professed faith in Jesus, no matter what, she was as guilty as the husband. So he would take them, he would bind them, he would take them to Jerusalem where they would stand trial for blasphemy, where they would stand trial for corrupting the faith of Judaism. If they were found guilty, they were murdered by being stoned. Paul would later write that he gave his approval to these. In other words, this was Paul's purpose. He intended that these people would die if they would not turn away from Jesus Christ. Paul was brutal in his persecution of the church of Christ. But not only was he a persecutor and a blasphemer, he was also insolent. And the word that's translated as insolent is translated in different ways in other versions. The King James calls it an injurious person. And it means that not only did he treat others badly, but that he hurt them and he enjoyed doing it. Right? Here's what commentator William Barclay had to say about the word injurious. He said, it indicates a kind of arrogant sadism. It describes the man who is out to inflict pain and injury for the sheer joy of inflicting it. This is what Paul was once like in regard to the Christian church. Not content with words of insult, he went to the limit of legal persecution. Not content with legal persecution, he went to the limit of sadistic brutality in an attempt to stamp out the Christian faith. Now this, that's what Paul was. Right? Paul was a terrorist. Paul was a Jewish version of ISIS that did all that he could to go where he could to stomp the Christian faith out. But then something happened that changed all of that. It says in verse 13... Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I obtained mercy. Then verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. What happened to change Paul was that he met Jesus and he received grace and mercy. Now, grace and mercy are really important concepts for us to understand. But think of it like this. Let's say justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So think of it like this. Let's say you're driving down Sunset Lane at 70 miles an hour. And you get pulled over by a Guyman police officer. Now, if he comes up to you and he gives you a ticket, that's justice. You're getting what you deserved. If he walks up to you and he says, you know what, you were speeding, but slow down and don't do this again. And he lets you go. That's mercy. He's not giving you what you deserve. But if he gives you the ticket, and then when you go to pay it, you find out that very same officer has already paid it for you, well, that's grace. You're getting what you did not deserve. And what Jesus has done for us is he has given us grace and mercy. Paul says that he had obtained mercy. And I love the idea of obtaining mercy. I love understanding about God's mercy. Not getting what we deserve. Do you realize... That if God was the harsh, judgmental God we're often told he is in our culture, we would all receive justice immediately upon sinning. Think about that. I mean, how many of us just this last week, we did things we knew God did not want us to do. 
If God was the harsh and angry God that the culture tells us He is, we would have already received justice for those actions. But instead, we have received mercy. And one way to understand mercy in light of this is to see God standing between us and the wrath to come. God's justice is going to come at some point. At some point, the just God will judge the earth. That is absolutely going to happen. But between now and then, God is standing between His justice that's coming and He's stopping it. But not only is He stopping it with His mercy, He is also calling on us to come away from it. Right? His mercy is preventing the justice from hitting us and His mercy is also calling us to receive His grace. It is twofold in the way that it's working. Paul deserved justice. But instead, he obtained mercy and he also received grace. And it said that, his, that the Lord's grace was exceedingly abundant. The idea that God's grace was exceedingly abundant is that it was greater than Paul's sin. I mean, think about what Paul did. He blasphemed Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And he enjoyed hurting the people. I mean, Paul killed people. I mean, let's not, let's not minimize Paul persecuting the church. He wasn't a Facebook troll. He hunted people down. He caused them to die. And he enjoyed it. He took pride in what he did. He took pleasure in what he did. His sins were great. But his sins were no match for the grace that Jesus Christ gave. And, and it's similar to what he wrote to the Romans. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no sin that is greater than God's grace. And while we may not have been blasphemers, persecutors, and insolent people, like Paul, we have sinned against a holy God. We have earned the wages of those sins, which is death, which is the justice of God. But no matter how great our sin, God's grace is greater yet. The grace of Jesus Christ is far greater than our sin. Our sin is is no match. What God did for Paul in having a grace that's greater than sin, God can do for all in having a grace that is greater than sin. But not only... Is my sin no match for Jesus' grace? Jesus seeks me to save me. Paul said, I obtained mercy. He goes on in verse 14 and said that the grace that he received was exceedingly abundant with, with faith and love which are in Jesus Christ. In other words, the grace and mercy that he received caused Paul to believe in Jesus. It caused him to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It caused him to trust in what Jesus did on the cross. It caused him to to determine to follow Jesus, to do Jesus' will no matter what. It also caused him to love God and to love others. The point that Paul would take the gospel, the ends of the earth, preach to people who who rejected him and despised him, and he took the gospel to them anyway. And all of this was because Jesus was the Savior of the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what his whole purpose was. Now, if we understand this, and we look at this, one thing to understand is Paul was not looking for Jesus. Now, when Paul was saved, he was not searching for Jesus Christ. He was not looking for the Savior of the world 
in Jesus Christ. He didn't think he needed forgiveness for his sins. If we were to go to Philippians 3, we'd see that Paul was fairly self-righteous. He didn't see a need for mercy and grace because Paul was good enough on his own. Paul wasn't looking for a place to fit in and people to help him in his life. Paul was looking for the people of God to persecute them and to put them to death. Paul was not in any way you might imagine searching for, looking for, or wanting Jesus Christ. Paul's life was just fine the way it was. Paul was a Pharisee making headway. He was growing and he was becoming more and more popular, more and more powerful. He came from an influential family. He was trained by an influential teacher. Paul was on the fast track to success. And Jesus came and messed all of that up. Jesus sought Paul and turned his life all the way around. To really understand that, I want us to look at Paul's conversion. So turn to Acts chapter 9. Page 837. Verse 1. Then Saul, who is Paul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest to receive letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were a part of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, we've talked about him being a persecutor, but just notice the, the breathing threats. Uh, and to me, the image that always gives me is that that was all Paul would talk about. How's the weather? It'd be better if the Jews were not worshiping Jesus. Right? Everything in Paul's life referred back to that. I'm going to stop them. You watch. I'll stop the church. I'll, I'll stomp them out. There will not be a Christian left in the Jewish world. That's Paul's, that was his focus. So he was going to Damascus, and then Jesus interrupted his life. As he journeyed, he came near to Damascus. Suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Right, so Paul's riding along, breathing threats, thinking about all he's going to do to the Jews in Damascus that worship Jesus. Suddenly, Jesus seeks him out. Jesus interrupts him on the way, knocks him down, gets his attention, and begins to speak to him. Paul has no idea who's talking from this bright light, and so he asks who it is. Jesus says, it's Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then he says an interesting phrase. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I know very little about farming. But in my understanding, a goad was basically a sharp stick that you would poke the ox or the bull with to motivate it to keep going. Right? It was something that you would, you would goad it along. And it was a dangerous thing for the ox to, to kick back against it because it could gouge them or it could hurt them. But here's what Jesus says to him. It's hard for you, Paul, to kick against the goads. What this brings to my mind is that even before this, Jesus was working in Paul's life. Even before this moment, Jesus was at work in Paul trying to bring him to faith in Christ. And up to this point, Paul was pushing back against it. Paul was having none of it. Now, how was Jesus working? I don't have any idea. Just I know that he was. And then in this moment, Paul is, is overwhelmed. There is the clear evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's what Jesus has been doing in his heart up to this point. 
Paul surrenders to it. He fasts and he prays. Look at verse 20 to see the complete change in Paul's life in just a few days. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. Right? So, three days ago, Paul was going to Damascus to stop people from preaching in Jesus. Three days later, he's in the synagogues preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus radically transformed his life. But Jesus was the one that sought Paul out. Go ahead and turn back to 1 Timothy. The thing we've got to understand in this is that Jesus is always the one who does the seeking in our lives. Jesus is always the one who does the saving in our lives. Our every desire for Jesus is always a response to Jesus' desire for us. Anytime we want to grow deeper in Christ, that is Christ calling to us. Anytime we want to know Christ, that is Christ calling to us. But I think about my own conversion in this. I was nine or ten, standing with my granny Doolin. She had a picture on her wall that was Jesus standing outside of a door and it didn't have a handle on it. So I asked her, I said, why is there no door handle on the door? Because Jesus was knocking. So the door represents the heart of the humans. And Jesus doesn't open it up and go in. Instead, he knocks and he invites us to open it up so that he can come in. She said, have you ever opened your heart and received Jesus? I said, no, I haven't, Granny. She said, well, tonight, as you lay in bed... I want you to listen to see if you can hear Jesus knocking on your heart's door. And if he does, open it up. So I'm not a laid in bed thinking about that. Sure enough, I was aware. There was something pulling me to cry out to Jesus to save me. But I had some things I planned to do in life. And a lot of those things were, I'm pretty sure, from what I've learned in Sunday school, weren't things I was supposed to be doing. And so I... I kicked against the goads. I I resisted. And from that moment on, every time I went to church, I felt convicted. I felt drawn to call out to Jesus to save me. And every time for years, I resisted that call. And I say this not because I think my conversion experience is unique, but because I think it's common. I, I would venture to say we all heard the gospel multiple times before we were saved. I would venture to say that all of us felt a pull to receive the gospel at least once or twice before we received it. I mean, few are the people who hear the gospel once, feel the call of Christ, surrender to him immediately. Most, in my experience, takes time and they wrestle. They they kick against the goads for a period of time. And what I want you to understand is that feeling that of God pulling, of something pulling me to Jesus, saying that's what I need, that's what I want. That's not your idea. That's not your opinion. That, that is not, that's not your thoughts at all. That is Jesus working to call you to himself, to draw you to salvation. That's what he did for Paul. That's what he did for me. That's what he does for everyone. Jesus always works to draw people to himself. Now, this is there's a couple of things quickly that this means for us on a personal level. On the one hand, it means that if I'm feeling drawn to Jesus, that's Jesus. That's a good thing. This isn't me just being curious. This isn't me having some sort of an idea. This is Jesus at work in me trying to draw me to himself or draw me closer to himself. At the same time, it gives me confidence when I talk to people about Jesus. Because it's not about how good of a salesman I am or how... Ed, uh, 
eloquent I can be, Jesus does the hard work. Jesus calls them to himself. Jesus does the seeking. Jesus does the saving. Jesus seeks and saves sinners. That's what he did for Paul. That's what he does for all. We can depend on that. Second truth we need to understand is that Jesus equips the saved to serve. Jesus equips the saved to serve. Paul says in verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. I went out of order intentionally because I wanted to talk about the saving before the serving. That's what happened. Paul was saved. He began to serve. Jesus began to take him and and begin to equip him to serve. And there's, again, two truths about Jesus equipping the saved to serve. One, I'm saved to serve. I mean, we looked at Paul's conversion and immediately he went and began to preach that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Paul says here that I thank Jesus, our Lord, who enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. That phrase, putting me into the ministry, is important for us to get. On the one hand, what we see is that what Paul was doing in his service to Jesus, it was Jesus' idea. It was God, it was Jesus who called Paul into the ministry of going and preaching the gospel, planting churches, and making disciples. It wasn't Paul deciding, this is the thing that I'll do. I think I'll give up everything and go and plant churches all over the world. It was Jesus at work in Paul, calling him to go do that. For us, what we understand is, Jesus wants all of us to be active in serving him, right? The ministry idea that we've often limited ministry is we often made ministry about what the preacher does or what missionaries do right but the reality is ministry is simply serving jesus by serving others and all believers are meant to be involved in ministry in one way or another we're all meant to serve jesus that is the i mean that is the point that we're saved for we are saved to serve every single one of us now the way we serve it will likely be very very different but we are all meant to serve. Jesus saves us. Jesus then puts us in the ministry where he knows we will be a better fit, where we can accomplish the most for his glory. This, is, this even goes along with the idea of receiving grace. I love this. The grace of, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, the grace of God which was with me. Paul, again, he's not saying anything about being saved by his good works. He was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's, that's it. But grace isn't opposed to work. Grace is opposed to merit. Now, I never work enough to earn my salvation. I never work enough to pay back Jesus for all he has done for me. That is beyond my scope, beyond my ability. But the grace of God that has been given to me does not motivate me to do nothing. It motivates me to serve the one who has saved me. When I understand that justice was coming toward me and God stopped it and God pulled me out of the way and gave me his grace, I am motivated to do all that I can for the one who has saved me. I will give my life to do the will of the one who has saved me. The grace of God never motivates us to laxness and laziness. It motivates us to fervor, diligent service to the one that has saved us. We, we are all saved to serve. Jesus saved Paul and immediately put him to the ministry. And what Jesus does for Paul, he does for us all. He saves us and he immediately puts us into the ministry. 
Second truth is that I am empowered to serve. Paul says that Jesus enabled me. The idea is that he gave him the power necessary to do what needed to be done. In the coming weeks, we will look at some of the testimonies of the Apostle Paul about his service. One of the things that we'll look at is in 2 Corinthians 3 where Paul says, I'm not sufficient unto myself to do this. But it was given to me to be sufficient. Anything Jesus puts us in the ministry to do, Jesus empowers us to complete. Right? And we talked about that in our Sunday school class this morning. There is nothing that Jesus will ever call us to do that Jesus won't give us the ability to make it happen. Now, with that, there's a couple of things. I think on the one hand, that is, that is a hopeful thought. Right? Because what that means is I really can do anything the Bible says I'm supposed to do. No matter what the Bible says I'm to do as a believer in Jesus Christ, I can. I can. I can live a holy life. I can resist temptation. I can follow the Spirit. I can seek to save others. I can leave the with the gospel. I can make disciples of all nations. I can do it. That's a hopeful thought, but it's also a challenging thought. Because what that does to me is if I'm not doing it, what's going on? If I can do it, then why aren't I doing it? Well, in the end, it's because I'm disobedient. It's never about my ability It's always about my willingness. I can do anything that God wants me to do. I can do anything Jesus leads me to do. I just need to depend on his power and obey him. I listened to a sermon last week, last Saturday night. The preacher said that God doesn't need us to be awesome. God is already awesome. God just needs us to be obedient. It's not a matter of our inadequacy. We are inadequate. That's just the way it is. We can't do what we're called to do. But through Christ, we can do all things. Through Christ, we are able to accomplish what needs to be done. We are always empowered to serve. And this is really the way God has always worked in the world. I love this passage. So he answered and said to me, this is not the word of the Lord. But this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord. Now, Zerubbabel, that's just a fun name to say, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was given the task of rebuilding the temple in the midst of a people who were half-hearted, to say the least. The temple was not going to be rebuilt in the glory that it was under Solomon. The people were half-hearted. The oppression and the opposition was real. And Zerubbabel was kind of wondering, how on earth can I accomplish a mission such as this? And so God tells him, it's not by your might, it's not by your strength, Zerubbabel. It's not going to be you that does it in your own power. But by my spirit, says the Lord. God's spirit would make sure that Zerubbabel could do what God was calling him to do. All Zerubbabel needed to do was be faithful to obey God, start the work, and trust that God would do what he had said he would do. That's the way it always is. Paul understood, that's why Paul wrote to the Philippians, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, this doesn't mean that what we're called to do will be easy. Very likely, it will be hard. This doesn't mean that what we're called to do, we will look at it and say, I can do it right off the top of our heads. Likely, it will seem beyond our abilities. But I think I've mentioned before, I'm becoming more and more convinced that if I can look at what God is calling me to do, and I can think to myself, that's easy enough, I've got it. Chances are that's not God calling me to do it. 
God will always call us to do things that are beyond our abilities. God will always call us to do things that are beyond our capabilities so that we learn then it's not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. If I don't need God to help me to do it, chances are God's not the one leading me to do it. If God's going to lead me to it, God's going to lead me to something that I have to require, where I require his help, and his power to make it done. But the good thing is, he will always give us that strength. He will always give us that power. God empowered Paul to serve, to accomplish what needed to be done. And what God does with Paul, God does with us all. So we can do whatever God tells us to do. We can do whatever God is leading us to do. It is possible. Now, the question is, how do we respond to a message like this? I think there's one, at least one of three ways we need to respond. We need to embrace Jesus. Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. He comes to seek and to save those who are lost. First thing we have to do is we have to embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior. That, that is the basis for everything. Nothing matters apart from that. I mean, if we have not embraced Jesus Christ as our Savior, we can't do anything, the Bible says. God's power will not come upon us to enable us. Nothing matters. Everything rises and falls on our connection to Jesus. We have to be sure we have embraced Him as our Savior. And that means we have to believe and receive. We have to believe that Jesus is who the Bible says He is. We have to believe that He did what the Bible says He did. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day. We have to believe that Jesus really can save us from our sins. He, Jesus really will forgive us. And we'll take it away and make us into new creations. Then we have to receive him, which means I have to make the personal decision to call upon Jesus to save me. You have to make a personal decision to call upon Jesus to save you. No one can make that decision for you. As much as I love my daughters and I want them to be saved, it is their decision to make. They must call upon Jesus to save them. They must embrace him as their savior and as their Lord. It's the same with you. You are the only person who can embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior. You must do that for yourself. So first, we need to be sure that we've embraced Jesus. We need to serve Jesus. I'm saved to serve. If Jesus has saved me, he meant for me, he means for me to serve him. So are you, are you active and faithful in your service to Jesus Christ? Are you doing what he has called you to do? You should be. There's no reason for any of us not to be. There is something that we can do service to Jesus Christ, no matter who we are, or where we've been or what we've done. Nothing is a, is a hindrance. I mean, you think about like Abraham. Abraham, 75 years old when God called him. Uh, you look in the Gospel of Luke, the, the widow woman that lived serving the Lord and got to see Jesus. I mean, the Bible is filled with people who were old, people who were young. Right? The key thing isn't how good we are, how great we are, how young we are, how old we are, how much we know, how little we know. The key thing is that we're willing to do what Jesus wants us to do. If I will just say, yes, Lord, and go, Jesus will take care of everything else. Thirdly, share Jesus. The people we may have in our categories of can't be saved or won't be saved need to be taken out of that. Jesus will draw them. Jesus will work in them. I think it's likely that Jesus is working in them already. Our need is not to be slick. Our need is not to be great. Our need is not to be eloquent. Our need is to be faithful, to share the gospel, to believe that Jesus can call them to himself, that Jesus will save them. Do it confidently, boldly, continually. I'm not a big fan of forcing the conversation. But I believe if I want to share Jesus with somebody, opportunities will arise. There will be things that will happen. Opportunities will come up where I will have the ability to talk to them about Jesus Christ. And all of that gives him an opportunity to work through that, draw him to himself. I need to be faithful to share Jesus. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.